So I, um, one of my tutors for this passage is actually a rabbi um, who has a website called Aleph Beta, and I just give it to you out there, both to give him some credit for some of my thoughts here, but also um, just to recommend it to you if you want a kind of very Jewish explanation of the Old Testament. Um, it is rich. He has like 20,000 followers and 10,000 of them are Christians. Um, so it, it's quite amazing, actually. Um, so let me get to where to starting. So I'm going to just read the scriptures as we go through, um, not to take up that extra time, but um, all right, we started with paradise, a garden in Eden where these beloved image bearers were there to tend and till, to tend and till uh, the earth, the garden, for its beauty and bounty for all who lived in it. And today we turn to the third chapter where it all goes wrong. It doesn't end well. It's the fall, the original disobedience, the original um, succumbing to temptation. And this first sin brought utter calamity to our world. Not only did it throw humanity into a state of guilt and shame, it actually becomes this kind of model, an archetype of how temptation works in our lives. And that's what we're going to explore today, a kind of anti-model of how all of Adam's sons and daughters experience the same kind of temptation and failure. And the first temptation is uh, one that I'll call the, well, let me just say about temptation in general. Temptation always interrogates God. I didn't say questions God. Actually, the Bible is full of places where we can go to him and go, I don't know what's going on. Are you here? Are you ever going to leave me? Where are you? Those are questions as a child asks their parents, and those are celebrated and loved. But to interrogate God is a different thing. And the first temptation that we have before us is a temptation to interrogate God's law, his good law, and his fatherly love. It is subtle in the text. The crafty one slinks up to Eve and Adam, who was next to her, and says, did he actually say? Did Elohim actually say you can't eat, you can eat of every tree and not that one? You can't eat of every tree in the garden? Doesn't seem like a crafty question because Eve answers it 100% correctly. She says something like, well, yeah, Adam and I have been talking and we know the command. In fact, we can eat of everything in the garden, just not that one. She goes on to say more, which is, we'll die even if we touch it. Now, Yahweh didn't say it, so clearly Adam and Eve had been discussing this and had put some extra safeguard on it. But the serpent is called the craftiest. And his language about God is fascinating and diabolically subtle. Genesis 1, as we went through talked and used the term for God, Elohim, which is God in a kind of generic sense, the king, the creator, the judge. You know, he makes everything in the world and he judges it good. In Genesis 2, when God is doing his creation, the intimate um, um, breathing the, the breath of life into Adam and Eve, he's called Yahweh. 
which is God as Father. It's the covenant-keeping God. It's God with a proper name, like an actual name. And the serpent asked, did Elohim really say? Now that is subtle, but hear the difference. Did the judge really say this? It's a technical question, and it's an interrogation of the records. Did your father really say this? That's a relational question. Just go ask dad. The serpent isolates and emphasizes God's sovereign judgeship, trying to divert the attention away from the judge, who's also their father. Friends, God is always transcendent king and intimate father. God is sovereign Lord and loving parent. And one of the craftiest ploys of evil is to separate those things out. Listen, never forget the prayer. God is great. God is good. It doesn't get any better theology than that. So the serpent orients her almost subconsciously to hear don't eat as only a judge's verdict and not as a father's guidance. He's just saying, I don't want you to get hurt. Temptation always takes some good thing about what God is offering and enlarges it and eclipses it, its goodness. Sin is always like a tumor that overgrows, it's an overgrown mass of something that's normally good. So this concentration on his judgeship is part of the problem. The sermon's second strategy is more direct though. It's not about the command or the law, but actually God's character itself. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll get it. Eve answered the question of the law rightly. But what if you can't trust your father? He's holding out on you. We all know that experience of that and being a father, I can tell you, I ain't a father like God. I wanna be, but I'm not. And so the serpent goes here next. Ignore the utter reality of him giving you everything in the garden to be about and to enjoy. Concentrate on the one thing that he says no to. What's he hiding? God may be great, but is he good? He's keeping the really good stuff from you, you know. He's actually worried you may become like him. Don't you want to be great too? And he lets it all sink in. The truth is that God surely wanted obedience, but it's born of his love. Like, grab my hand, we're going across the parking lot. You got to grab the hand, that's what you want. But what's it born of? Love. Think about how our gratitude is shown, our trust is shown by obedience. It's a trust of his guidance and his character. And his law and his love are not opposed to each other. We can eat everything we want. Just one thing. Listen, Ralphie's parents wanted him to enjoy the official Red Rider carbon action 200 shot range model air air rifle with a compass in the stock. But they were very clear that it is not intended for harm of others or yourself. You'll shoot your eye out. And Ralphie would show his gratitude of the good gift he was given by using it within its limits. 
And no, it was not his fault. Unlike Adam and Eve's. Our first parents would let those two little temptations, those lies, sink in. That God is not great. That he's not good. That we can't trust his law because he's either simply a judge or he's a God who's, who's a father who is holding out on us, which makes him a jealous tyrant and not a father in any sense of the word. But the, er, the serpent added the soul-breaking temptation of them all. And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The irony of this statement, when the whole first two chapters are saying that we were built in God's likeness, it's unbelievable. But the crafty creep, as I call him, says it's not enough. You need to know good and evil like God knows good and evil. It is the last universal temptation. The temptation that we would know as if we were God. This myth is still with us, and it's easily believed today that we can handle God's knowledge of good and evil. It's not just our first parents who saw that the tree was to be desired to make one wise and then ate. The sissing sounds of the serpent still seduce us. It creates a place where we can know some form of good and evil without a deep reliance upon God. It's our culture's Achilles heel right now and it's destroying us. Mean tweets and deep suspicions are born from thinking we have a godlike knowledge of something. It's what makes us feel justified in hating or demeaning or devaluing or judging or dismissing other image bearers. We know something, but we think we know it like God knows it. And the proof of it is our arrogance. If you believe that you have God-like knowledge of good and evil, then you cannot be wrong. In your own eyes, your arrogance is just proof of, 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 of you doing good in the world. You're doing the world a favor. This is the danger of being so certain about our takes and our tweets I am not talking about humbly receiving God's good guidance, his, his word to us given as a gift, but that word is not given to us without reliance upon the Holy Spirit. And you ain't reading God's word if after you read it, you arrogant. <laughs> the knowledge of good and evil isn't about knowing good and evil, it's knowing good and evil like God. And we can't handle the truth. It's a knowledge without love, a knowledge without mercy, a knowledge without a deep and abiding dependence on an actual relationship with the living God who's actually moving and living in the world. And so it's no knowledge at all that the Bible knows of. That is not wishy-washy. That's simply being a Christian humbled by God, knowing that he's sanctifying us and reliant upon him to reveal his word. That's all that is. So what happened? Spoiler alert, they ate. I know that's, that was shocking to you. Our first mother was overwhelmed by the tempter. The scripture says, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. The craftiness worked. 
this lingering sense of God as judge alone and not father, an interrogation of the father's character. Maybe he's not good. Even a misplaced over delight in seeing the tree was beautiful and would be good to eat. And a desire to have knowledge and wisdom without reliance upon God. And don't let your don't let our culture and kind of our cultural histories blind us to the fact that also it also includes our first father's utter cowardice, cowardice and treacherous sin. It's true that the action of this passage orients around or centers on Eve, but the end of the passage gives the highlight of the passage. The Bible waits to the end to display the utter inaction of Adam. The Bible sees Adam as responsible for the fall, right? For just as in Adam all die, so all in Christ will be made alive. They were together. They were united. They were a team. They were a couple right next to each other. He was with her, and he was silent. He did nothing, abdicated his responsibility as a fellow image bearer, as a, as a, as a co-worker in the, in the garden. And Adam was told about the tree first. Eve wasn't even around when he got the first word on it. Adam's cowardly silence and manipulative passivity coupled with his own temptations where he kind of wants the same knowledge of good and evil without God and he uses his silence to manipulate the situation. Eve is certainly culpable. I'm not sexist enough to know, know that only men can ruin the world and the women can't too. We all have power here. But the scripture blames the fall securely on his shoulders. And the damage is done. I wonder if I can do something to that work. No, doesn't work at all, does it? Not helpful. And paradise is lost. And you need to think about this. From here on out, you'll read about the devolution of creation. The relationship between God and us, us and ourselves. Everybody just start clicking that way, it'll be fine. <laughs> us and ourselves, we can get a little bit of sway to it. Us and each other, us and creation, all estranged, all wrong. And we participated in, in it fully. We have taken on the family mode. Think about your own experience when God's good guidance and love come to you in his law. Did God really say that my body is not my own? He did. Did God, did Jesus really say that it's really hard to enter the kingdom of heaven with riches? He did. Did Jesus really say that we should be more fearful of his ability to judge us than buildings falling upon us? He did. Did Jesus really say that if you call someone a fool that you're guilty of murder? Did Jesus really say that our sins are forgiven as we forgive others? Did Jesus really say that we have to love our enemies? Does that feel restrictive or punitive? 
the judge is also our father. And he's saying, you're mine. I made you. I know what's best for you. This is the path for you. And how we orient to the law of God and his love matters if we stick only with the judge and we slip into deeper temptation. He doesn't love me. He doesn't look good for me. You start to think to yourself, he's the tyrannical ruler, not my loving father. He's great and not good, or he's good and not great. And if all you have is a tyrant, you will do anything to avoid him. You will always run headlong into what will harm you or others. And here is how it even gets worse because there's the full knowledge that the sin has occurred. And what is their first instinct? They go and cover themselves. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. This is a tragic instinct of Adam and Eve and all the sons and daughters of Adam is to begin to cover fig leaves. <laughs> we cover our shame. We shield our vulnerability and our guilt. We hide our own nakedness. We have mimicked our first parents. We trust and disobey, and then we cover. And we cover with excuses, and we cover with more interrogating God, and we, we cover with the lie that he's a tyrant, and he's hiding something from us, and that we're justified in our actions. Or sometimes we feel that guilt, and so we get to work. First, the work of denial, you know, covering up with drink or food or sleep or whatever it is, or work. And sometimes we get to work by covering with money and status and success. But it's all fig leaves. It's all fig leaves. None of it actually covers because we are now dead in our sin and our efforts cannot cover our sin and shame. They cannot do it. We don't have the right knowledge, the right power, and the right righteousness to do so. Because the gospel is not actually in what we do, even in our covering. It's what he does in response to it. And the reality of the gospel is that God comes and covers us. In just a few verses, we see God's response, this beautiful, powerful act of his covering mercy and his powerful grace. After our parents committed cosmic treason against him, the father would not reject his creation. He would clothe them. God makes skins. Take off those raggedy, self-sewn clothes and let me dress you in something proper. Something from my hand. And he did so in this wonderful foreshadowing by taking the life of one of his creatures that he had made. God shed blood to cover them. It's a foretaste of how he would end up saving the world through his son. By justice, he is the judge God, and it required sacrifice and by covering, by clothing in his love and his righteousness. Redeeming sinners like Adam and Eve, and like you and like me. 
the whole sacrificial system of the Old Testament, the whole narrative of, of the scriptures are these stories of our fallenness and our brokenness, our desperate attempts, useless attempts to grab fig leaves and do something with it. But God's response to that by coming sacrificially with justice and power and mercy and coming to cover us. This is why he sends his son. Jesus called the lamb a sacrifice who would take away the sin of the world. The one who knew sin would, the, the one who knew, no, who knew no sin would become sin that we might become the righteousness that is in Christ. Isaiah would prophesy about, about it. For he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has wrapped me with a robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself with a garland and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. Zechariah points to something similar. Remove the filthy garments from them. See, I've taken away your iniquity and will clothe you with festal robes, with feasting robes. And so Jesus becomes the second Adam, the righteous Adam, the perfect Adam. And that's why Paul says in Romans 13, put on Christ. That's why in Galatians he says, for as many of you who are baptized into Christ, you have put Christ on. That's why Hebrews says, pulling all the Old Testament narrative to, uh, to the front, he entered once and for all into the holy places, not by the means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Ashley Sharp, Sharp sent me an excerpt from Susan Hunt's book, um, Heirs of the Covenant, if I remember, great book. Susan's going through this part right here and she says, God was not obligated to do anything. He could have turned away from, from the creature and the creation. Instead, he intervened. He came into the garden, he called to the man and he clothed Adam and Eve in garments of skin. Here is the essence of grace. God came, called and clothed. God comes to us while we're dead in our trespasses and gives us new life. The tragedy of the fall is incalculable, friends. Every ache, every fist, every death, every deceit, every betrayal, every missile, every neglect, every abuse. We have not just experienced it all, we have participated in it all. And then seeing our guilt, we've run and covered useless fig leaves. The glory of the gospel is clearer and more powerful than all our sin. The Father sent the Son to cover our shame and cleanse our guilt. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we'll be reminded again, we'll be reminded again that we don't have to run from you, but we can run to you, that we don't have to hide, we don't have to cover, because you are our covering. We pray in your name. Amen.